Welcome to the Park Podcast, where dialogue across difference is vital to community wellness. I'm Dr. Leah Howard, your host in the space where open dialogue, the free exchange of ideas, and civil and robust expression of divergent views is valued. Here we will explore the research, the practical applications, and the benefits of effective, ethical, and civil dialogue in a diverse world. We hope to model respectful conversation that accurately and authentically frames contentious issues, hoping to reach an ideologically diverse audience. Welcome to our guests, Dr. Andrew Newberg, Director of Research at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health and physician at Jefferson University Hospital, where he is board certified in internal medicine and nuclear medicine, and Dr. Justin McDaniel, Edmund J. and Louise W. Kahn Endowed Professor of the Humanities and Undergraduate Studies Chair in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Both of my guests were featured in a conversation at the event Other Ways of Knowing at the intersection of neuroscience and the mystical, co-sponsored by Jackie Tileston, Associate Professor in Fine Arts, Stuart Weitzman School of Design, and the SNF Padilla Program. As an opener to that event, Professor Tileston read a quote from scholar Jeffrey Kerpel, quote, if we come to see consciousness as being more and more fundamental to the nature of reality, if consciousness turns out to be cosmic, in other words, then suddenly the humanities are not just studying tangential fluff or illusions produced by dying brains. Suddenly humanists are studying the ultimate nature of reality insofar as that reality is indirectly coded in cultural forms. Science is getting weirder and weirder and more poetic, and we need the widest possible space within which to have these discussions with depth and intellectual flexibility, end quote. Today, we want to continue that earlier conversation and focus in on listening. As you know, at the SNF Padilla program, we believe that individual and community wellness are connected and in the importance of listening across difference. Learning about the brain and listening and how to develop spiritual and cognitive processes around listening provides an intriguing way to explore those themes. And so I'm thrilled to have you both with us today to tell us more. I'd like to start by asking Andrew, how would you define neurotheology and how is your research delineating this emerging field? Oh, well, thank you for having me on the program. And um, uh, basically, you know, to the simplest definition is that neurotheology is the, the field of study, the field of scholarship that seeks to understand the relationship between religion and spirituality on one hand and our brain on the other hand. Uh, a couple of caveats with that. Uh, first of all, I think to me, it's always important for people to realize that it is meant to be a sort of true two-way street. It is not just neuroscience looking at religion. It is not religion looking at science, but it is really the two of them looking at each other to help us better understand who we are as human beings. The other point that I always like to make is that I think for neurotheology as a field and as a term uh, to work, because obviously there are other possible terms, uh, I like to define the neuro side and the theology side very broadly. So the neuro side is not just neuroscience, but it can be medicine, it can be neuroimaging, it can be psychology, it can be anthropology, all the different ways that we get at kind of our, the biological stuff of who we are, and including uh, how we understand the physiology of our body as well. 
And then on the other side, I mean, theology obviously is a very specific, uh, uh, it's, it's a very specific field, it's a very specific discipline in which uh, people are looking at the you know sacred texts, the sacred ideas of a given tradition and trying to analyze them. And we certainly can apply a perspective about what's going on in the brain when people are engaged in that kind of analysis. But it also, uh, for neurotheology, I can think to work as a term, we have to expand that theology side to religious experiences, uh, spiritual you know, beliefs and practices, uh, mystical experiences, rituals, um, as well as beliefs and even theological ideas as well. So I think if we kind of keep it very broad and keep it very multidisciplinary in that regard, uh, I think it ultimately can work as a field. And there's been a lot of exciting stuff that has been going on in the last uh, 15, 20 years with regard to neurotheology. And hopefully uh, it is really just the beginning. We're just scratching the surface with a lot more for us to learn and understand. Oh, it's a fascinating, fascinating concept. And did you set out to study the brain's reaction to enlightenment? In essence, what led you on this journey? And how has your research influenced you personally? Well, a lot of my... Um, interest in this whole area it really goes back to when I was a kid and I was you know, always asking a lot of questions about you know why are there different religions and and uh, how we sort of understand the nature of reality so to me the, the fundamental question was always sort of how do we understand uh, what do we think is real why do we think it's real and how do we know if what we think is real is actually real um, and so uh, in my own mind I guess I originally thought that science would have a lot to say about that and certainly we had a focus on the human brain and how our brain takes information from the world around us and helps us to create a, a sense of the world and a sense of reality. But as I went through my training, um, began to realize that science, as as terrific as it is, and as you know, as good as it is specifically at looking at the material world, um, has certain limitations, especially when it comes to things like consciousness and spirituality. Uh, and so I started to explore various philosophical traditions and approaches, different uh, religious and spiritual traditions. And so all of this was kind of swirling around in my own mind as I got through college and headed into medical school. And then I was just very fortunate to have uh, two wonderful mentors, one who was in the imaging world. And so we did a lot of brain scans of people with Alzheimer's and depression and so forth. Um, and then also met up with a psychiatrist who also by training was an anthropologist. And um, he had been exploring these same kind of questions about religion and spirituality and how they relate to the brain. Um, as early as the 1970s. And so we connected in the early 1990s and started to really kind of push forward um, a way of looking at these things. And then, of course, with the imaging piece as well, um, I suddenly realized, well, gee, you know, if we're studying the brain uh, of people with Alzheimer's and, um, and depression, why can't we study the brain of someone who's religious and spiritual or doing a practice like meditation? And that was really what um, kind of created that whole uh, approach and and for me it um, yeah you know I I feel like I have learned a great deal but uh, all of it is sort of my own uh, person for me it's my own kind of personal sort of combines spiritual and scientific journey to uh, understanding who we are and who I am and uh, how we interact with reality so uh, I'm glad you're working on it because it's so fascinating and I appreciate you mentioning mentorship I think it's a great way now to bring Justin in. Justin, I'd love to hear, could you talk a little bit more about your research and practice? So you study Sanskrit and Indian studies, you've experienced monastic life. What contributed to your decision to leave the monastic life to teach um, and research in the academy? 
Um, that's a great question. I'd like to say like Dr. Newberg, I was uh, inspired from a child. I, I don't think I questioned reality as a child. I was mostly graffitiing buildings and, and getting in trouble at school. But uh, yeah, I did. I, I, I went to Asia uh, quite young um, as a volunteer. Uh, so I didn't, was not interested in, um, in, in Buddhism per se. Um, but I was doing volunteer work and um, I got to know a lot of Buddhists to get to know monks and nuns and things like that. And, um, you know, I, I was interested in, and um, I went into the, I ordained as a monk um, uh, and, you know, the whole shaved head, no shoes, eat once a day, you know, thing and did funerals and performed weddings and meditated and, blessed water buffaloes and, and, and chanted and things like that. Um, and it was very uh, rewarding, um, and very hard. I, uh, I left the monastery, you know, for a variety of reasons. Uh, one, um, intellectual, um, and, uh, another one because I, um, my mom was sick. I, decided to join the academy um, mainly because I had no other skills. Um, I, I, I was a bartender for many years and um, I worked in a lockdown unit of a of, of, of mental institution, Mass Mental Health, which is, I think, was the nation's oldest. It's now closed. Um, and but I did. I, the only thing I was really good at was languages. And so um, I had all these linguistic skills and I love languages and um, I decided that I would go study languages like Sanskrit and Pali and Thai and Lao and Burmese and things. And then um, that led to um, teaching what I teach. Well, it's a fascinating life. And thank you for sharing those pieces with us. Um, do you find now, is, are there connections between your meditation practice and your research? Have you found ways to link together your past and your present? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, especially in my teaching, uh, more than my research. Um, so I have written on meditation and I have written on Buddhist practice and ritual. Um, but I mostly write on Buddhist art and architecture and Buddhist manuscript culture and illuminated manuscripts and things like that. Um, but I, I incorporate it with my teaching. So I teach two courses, which are very experiential courses where students do meditate and they do take vows of silence and things like this. And they have kind of intense reading and, and discussion. And um, so I bring into that because I agree with Dr. Newberg in the sense that we, we, we um, combining, you know, um, the physical um, uh, meditation, I think is a primarily a physical practice more than anything else, or it begins at least that way. And all monastic traditions begin with the body. Um, uh, intense study of the, your body and other people's bodies, um, and and the and the spiritual, if you want to call it that, um, and so that I uh, I certainly don't think you can teach um, uh, in the humanities without understanding that we are exist in bodies and we exist in networks of of influence, and that we you know we eat and we go to the bathroom and we you know. Uh, take substances and we have sex and we do all of these things. And that to, to say that that is separate from the cerebral life or the spiritual life is I, I find kind of ridiculous. Thank you. I, I really, it's perfect segue. Um, thinking about ourselves as embodied to now turn to, a to thinking about listening. And so Andrew, how does listening influence our perception of reality? 
I believe you said in your earlier lecture that the part of the brain that deals with auditory and visual perception is called the thalamus. What happens to this part of the brain during listening? And are there practices we can adopt that can strengthen our auditory perception or perhaps ways we can train our bodies or minds so we can physically listen better? Well, definitely, um, uh, there's a lot of different physiological changes that go on in the brain when we listen. And the the brain is quite remarkable in terms of um, how we process all information that comes in from the outside. Uh, You know, ultimately, when we're listening, when you're listening to my voice, um, it's it's waves, you know, it's uh, it's compressed waves of air that are hitting your ear in a certain way. And then that affects uh, parts of the ear that ultimately uh, connect to the neurons that go through the thalamus and then ultimately up into the auditory cortex and begin to process what are just sounds and, and, uh, uh, tones and things like that into words that we can then understand and make some sense out of. So it's really quite remarkable how all of that happens. And, um, and, and a lot of research has been looking at that. And of course, uh, similar processes occur for the visual uh, areas of the brain and smell and, and taste and so forth. But, um, but that being said, I, I think as with also, you know, pretty much every aspect of humanity, there are things that we can do to train ourselves. And uh, I, I wrote a book called um, uh, Words Can Change Your Brain. And part of what we do focus a lot on is uh, how we can use the science of language and communication and use that information to help people to communicate more effectively. And we refer to it as compassionate communication. And when it comes to listening itself, um, part of what we encourage people to do is to combine meditative pra- practices in conjunction with communication. So we get them to engage, for example, in a relatively brief mindfulness approach that allows them to pay attention to their own listening. You know, what are they listening to? How are they reacting to it? Um, and then speaking very briefly, very slowly to the person, and then getting into that dialogue. And in fact, uh, you know, the data also shows that our brains have a way of resonating with other people when we are engaged in a good conversation. So, um, you know, this is this is one approach, but, um, but certainly, uh, we've tried to sort of learn from what we know scientifically, for example, science has shown that um, that we have what's called working memory. And so we only can hold on to 30 seconds or so worth of information at any one time. So when people get into a big fight with somebody and they start lecturing to them for 20 minutes, um, you know, part of what the research shows is that that's really not effective. People can't remember all the different things that get said. So it's better to be brief. It's better to say things in 20, 30 second increments and then wait to see what kind of response that you get. Uh, The data shows that we do better when words and phrases are slowed down. If you speak very quickly, it's much harder for somebody to pay attention and to incorporate everything into their, their auditory system. But if you slow down, then people are able to absorb what you're saying more effectively. So, so we kind of take these different scientific pieces of information and then talk about how that can be utilized in the context of communication, both in terms of how you express yourself uh, briefly, slowly, um, carefully, and then also how you listen deeply, intently, slowly, and, and watching your reactions to 
whatever that other person is um, saying so that you can continue to develop a very intimate kind of uh, interaction with them. Excellent. I like, like how it's called compassionate um, communication. That's a really interesting phrase, especially thinking about our political moment. I can imagine how that would just oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> influence so much of our conversation. Justin, you teach several popular courses here at Penn out of the Department of Religious Studies. In your courses, you ask students to detach a bit from their phones, the rush of their lives, and to cultivate a deliberate life, the title of one of your courses. Can you talk a bit about the subject of these courses and what you've noticed about your students as they slow down? And have you noticed that they listen differently? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. One of my courses is called Living Living Deliberately, you know, after Thoreau, of course. And um, my students start with, you know, um, communication is that slowly they reduce the number of words they can use a day. And then for a month, they can have no phones, no TV, no radio and no speaking. And that includes in all their other courses that includes at their job for a solid month, they cannot speak. Um, and they can never use a phone, never computer, nothing, no email, nothing. One of my best, and I've taught this many times, and, and there's much more to it than that. What realized in, in teaching this over the years is, is how, how happy the students were. Universally, every single student I've ever had in every course, their grades have shot up in their other courses. That, um, when they take this, you think, oh, this would take them away from work. It doesn't. Um, they talk about deeper relationships they're forming. They talk about being better listeners. But one of my students, she said, and I think she put it beautifully, and she said that I learned in this course how to the art of single tasking. She said, like, when I eat, I eat. When I talk, I talk. When I listen, I listen. When I walk, I walk. Um, and, and, and student after student after student has stressed that, um, and that led me into teaching another course, related course called Ex Existential Despair, where students have an eight-hour lecture. We, we come together at 4 p.m. and we end at midnight, and we sit together and we read a book cover to cover, a very, very, you know, they don't know what book they're going to read. It's, you know, it's a novel. And then we sit together and we listen to each other's expressions on the shared experience. And it comes to midnight and no one wants to leave. And it's this wonderful study of like intense listening to others and intense, like listening to the words of a novelist. Um, you know, I think things like Isherwood and Baldwin and Mishima and Morrison and like, you know, kind of really great classic things that they should be reading anyway. Um, and, but what's the most, the thing I find most valuable about it is the unleashing of their mind when they're told to just do a single thing versus doing over eight hours on an evening, they would be studying for five different subjects, doing a part-time job, texting with friends. Like when they're just to do one thing, they really flourish. It's amazing. I, I really appreciate hearing about how you um, design focus and you in this, we live in this such a communication age, digital age, and you allow them to communicate and listen by these rules, which are so interesting. And as you said, end up liberating the conversation in certain ways. I really, I, I, I want to take your course. You know, I, I, <laughs> well, please, you're welcome. I want to add one thing and, and it has been a new development. So I have a, a former student, um, really excellent student uh, who took to these two courses um, and she suggested adding art, right? And so like that with each novel, that there was a paired piece of art. They would just look at the piece of art afterwards, and then I paired it with also a piece of music. And 
that really added to the course. It really added to that different people learn and kind of contemplate in different ways and see if we can overlap literature, art, and music in a certain way. And then, but I don't say why I'm linking all of these things. They make these fascinating connections between them. And it's, it shows me that a lot of times it's often much better when professors get out of the way, <laughs> they present them with fascinating material or hopefully fascinating and then get out of the way because, and unleash them and that it, we practice the art of listening as well. I want to switch gears just a little bit. Uh, we've been hearing so many wonderful things about communication and listening. And I want to uh, have a question for both of you. And I want to start with Andrew with this one. So I want to ask you about this thing called the righteous brain. So is the righteous brain in a neurologically different state than the enlightened brain? And I'll, I'll say what I mean by that. So social psychologist Jonathan Haidt writes about what he calls the righteous mind versus the open mind. And wanting to know if the, you think the open mind that he is referring to might be similar to the enlightened kind of brain that you're speaking about. In essence, are there ways in which religious views or political views can make thinking rigid? Um, and what about the state of enlightenment affirms, challenges, or complexifies that view? This whole topic of, of enlightenment or awakening, um, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of ways to look at that. And I think, you know, it's fascinating to see different perspectives on that, um, you know, talking about a mind or a brain that is more open, more enlightened. Um, there are lots of different terms that get used. And so part of the answer, I think, to your question is, you know, whether or not these various terms are ultimately reflecting a some commonality of, of all experiences, um, or whether they are fundamentally different. And that in and of itself, to me, is an interesting neurotheological question. So for, for example, if you were to line up, you know, 100 people, and 10 of them said, I'm enlightened, and, and one, you know, five of them said, I'm open minded. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, um, and 10 of them said, I'm a monk and, 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 uh, you know, uh, awakened in that regard, you know, are they are they describing the same fundamental experience? But they're just using, you know, their own words and their own background, um, their kind of colors, so to speak, the way in which they think about it. Uh, or are they really fundamentally different uh, types of experiences, and um, uh, or, or some hybrid of the two? Really, I mean, I, one of the things that again that I think becomes interesting is that uh, you know part of the answer, I think, also to your question is, you know, where do things like the different cognitive processes, emotional processes, experiential processes come into play here? Um, if you, you know, if you are thinking about something as part of this process, then is that different than feeling something um, about the process? If you feel, you know, if you have an experience and you feel a sense of love or a sense of morality or a sense of awakening, you know, again, um, you know, how, what are these things exactly? And what do we mean by them? And, and part of what to me is an also, and I don't know if this is another way of answering your question, um, but it, in many ways, it's kind of to throw it back to you and, and to the people who are listening, is what do people think? Um, and that's something that we also have really tried to do more recently is to say, well, you know, why should we look at what, you know, uh, Buddha had to say about enlightenment? What, why should we look at what um, Mother Teresa had to say, um, you know, or, or some great theologian or something like that? But what do people think? You know, can we go to a church? Can we go to a, a monastery and say, tell us what you think these experiences are? Tell us what you think they're about. 
and and then listen again goes back to your point about listening you know listen to what they have to say uh see what they are actually you know how they're relating those experiences and then use that information to then kind of focus back on okay well you know what is going on then what what's going on in their brain and their body um and in fact, as Justin was talking about his class, I was thinking, boy, it'd be really cool to scan these, these students' brains, you know, before, <laughs> before, and, before and after the eight hours or something like that um, and, uh, and see what's going on. So, um, so, you know, again, I think a lot of it has to do, uh, this to me is a lot of what uh, neurotheology kind of asks us to do, which is to, to ask the questions, to try to learn about things and to get lots of different perspectives. In fact, one last point I'll make is that, you know, where do we even go to to learn about those descriptions? I mean, do we go to a group of scientists? Do we go to a group of theologians, a group of monks, a group of regular people, whatever that, you know, <laughs> a group of musicians, um, you know, whatever? Um, how does everybody kind of look at those different ideas? And I think that there's some really fascinating things that we can learn by doing that. Uh, I appreciate that. The interplay between the different groups asking these questions, I think that's really important. Justin, what would you think about that question? And I'm happy to ask it again. I, I agree with Dr. Newbert that there, it, it matters what, what type of language you use and what kind of identity you use. I, I, I remember I, I had this, I had this um, aunt, a very, uh, very difficult aunt. I'm sure we all have difficult aunt, aunts, and um, I'm sure she considers me a difficult nephew. Um, that, you know, extremely politically conservative, um, extremely rigid uh, Christian in her sense, um, and and really difficult to get to get across certain things and, and, and discuss certain things. Um, because basically, if it wasn't um, a Christian thinker or a source that or a conservative political person that she basically wouldn't listen like that, you know, that person doesn't have a right to speak. So I started to like, say, just you know, experiment by saying, okay, well, you know, this, remember when Pope said this thing, and then say what I wanted to say afterward, she was like, Oh, well, but if I said, like, this Buddhist monk said this, it'd be like, she would just shut off, you know, that they wouldn't listen to it. And I, and I think it does matter how we present things in terms of, you know, what makes a, a rigid mind is, you know, I, 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 I would just say, I, I really, I guard myself against binary things. I just don't think that exists in nature. I don't think it exists in the human mind. We have the ability to hold contradictory views constantly. We all do uh, simultaneously. Um, and I see really well-meaning students um, that really struggle with this is that they might be a painter or an artist, or maybe they're really into coding or deeply into organic chem. Like they have something that they really dedicate their life to. Um, and then they enjoy it, but they feel very self-indulgent. I should be actively volunteering in my community. I should be participating um, in creative, creative production of some sort. And I think that I, instead of my students often see this as a conflict, I, I see it as an opportunity is that this is what makes you human. And um, is that we can have multiple kind of heroes, cultural heroes, political heroes, scientific heroes that we respect. And we can model our lives. And, and my father um, was really the model uh, of this to me. And my father just passed away about three weeks ago. Um, and I remember I was dropping, I was about to drop out of a PhD program and I was really struggling with it. And um, he goes to me and he goes, he was 52 at the time. And he goes, Justin, he goes, I'm 52 years old and I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. 
And I never want to decide because the second I have to decide means I have to be a grown up. And I just thought that was like really a very simple but really brilliant thing is that we push ourselves to try to be something, you know, and that we try to fulfill identity and we try to routinize our, our lives. Um, and I think it goes against the kind of wonderful dynamism of the brain that Dr. Newberg sees in pictures and has studied his whole life. Um, and that, that, in, that why, in a sense, you know, run away from it and kind of try to form an identity when we can celebrate our fragile and fractured nature. I, I'd like to just add actually a little something to, to is, uh, I mean, I, I really love what, uh, what Justin was saying. And, um, you know, uh, I also, I guess I didn't pick up on the part about the rigidity that you'd originally asked, but, you know, um, we talk about this a lot in our work. Uh, we actually did a book called the why we believe what we believe. And, and we talk a lot about, um, you know, how people form different beliefs and how they just, you know, decide to sort of uh, hold on to them or not, and, and allow flexibility and development. And, and I, I completely agree that, you know, uh, on one hand, it's so wonderful when you can be open and, and have complexity and so forth. Um, but then there is the brain that is, you know, trying to help us do some very basic things like survive in the world. And um, it, it, you know, as a general statement, our brain, you know, what we fight against is that our brain does not like ambiguity. It is so much easier for our brain to say, do this, don't do that, live this way, don't live that way. And so when people are religious or hold different political positions or something like that, um, it, I think it's very challenging for a lot of people because it's, you know, you, you create a system of beliefs that works for you. And so, uh, you know, uh, taking a, a nun or, or taking, you know, someone who's deeply religious or somebody who's deeply political one way or another, you know, part of why they are the way they are is that those beliefs and those ideas have worked for them. And it makes them feel like that's the way uh, I understand the world and, and I'm, I'm comfortable with that. So now they're confronted with an alternative. Uh, somebody who says, you know, uh, like like Justin's example. I mean, you know, with, with his aunt. Um, if you come at her and say, "Well, you know, there's another alternative here," she's going to look at that and say, "Well, it, she has, she has one of two options: either either she's wrong or you know he's wrong." <laughs> and if he, you know, if if she's wrong, well, that's a very anxiety provoking state to be in for the brain because basically that means that I don't understand the world as well as I thought I did. And that means that my chances of survival have just gone down. So, um, you know, on a very basic level, our brain likes to feel in control. It likes to feel that it understands the world because when it doesn't, we're sort of out of control. Um, and, but on the other hand, I think what a lot of spiritual traditions kind of encourage us to do is to be comfortable with that and to rest with that and to, to be able to, uh, you know, explore the other side and to think through ideas and to engage people who don't believe what we believe and whether that's religious traditions or political traditions. I mean, I, I agree. I mean, you know, when you look at the, the, you know, the incredible, um, divisiveness that we see, I mean, so much of it, I think we, we need to try to reach across and, and learn what other people are thinking because ultimately, all of our brains are in the same boat. We are all looking out on a basically infinite world, 
gathering about 0. 0.000 and another 57 zeros were 0.1% of the world and trying to make some sense out of it. And so it's not a surprise that people come to different conclusions. Um, and, and it's also not a surprise that, that we hold on to our beliefs very strongly because uh, if, if, you know, it's an interesting balance that we have, you know, we, we need to grow and adapt and, and develop as people. But if we go too far from, from a, a given belief system, then we start to lose that completely. And then that becomes scary for a lot of people. So it's a, it's an interesting challenge, you know, psychologically, philosophically, socially, um, uh, politically, religiously, you know, it's a, it's an interesting issue. And, and of course there are the brain correlates, but then there's the psychological pieces and um, it, it really is quite fascinating and complex. Well, thank you. You both have, op again, opened the question up in so many interesting ways um, and so much um, that I want to think about more with that. Thank you. I want to just ask you now, I mean, you've implicitly said so many things that our students can apply to their lives, but I want to ask you directly this the question to both of you. And Justin, we'll start with you. Based on your research, what kinds of advice would you give to college students based on what you know about the brain or religious practice? What do young people most need to think about in order to be better listeners? Are there practices they could develop or things they could read or think about? What's your direct advice to them? I would say, first of all, do less. It is amazing what the, how many demands they have on them. But they get trained from a very young age, in a sense, um, to be self-curators, like um, that they are constantly curating their identity and curating their life. And, and more is more. You have more volunteers and, and more jobs and, and more classes and more internships and more shadowing. And I'm amazed how many students you'll come in and they have these amazingly long CVs and resumes by the end of their junior year, but they've never been to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And it's a 10 minute walk. Um, and so I would just say, you know, do do a whole lot less and do what you're doing the few things you're doing and do them well. How about you, Andrew? Do you have any advice you'd give students that would help them better listen? Uh, well, you know, I, I guess the thing that I usually come to, um, because uh, it's been so important in my life and career um, as a scientist, but also as a, uh, a spiritual seeker, um, and, and I, I use this phrase in, in a lot of what I write about in terms of neurotheology too, is, is to kind of like never stop asking questions, to have a passion for inquiry, as I call it. Um, and I feel like as long as you keep asking, you know, it, it's when you stop asking that you kind of become set in your way. Um, you know, you, you feel like you've got it figured out and same, even, even the, the story about not growing up, you know, I mean, it's like, like, keep, keep looking you know, keep asking. Um, and I think as long as you sort of genuinely keep asking questions uh, about the world uh, to people, you know, I mean, again, how much can we learn instead of just saying, oh, you know, that person's Catholic or that person's Jewish, I know what they're like, um, to ask them, you know, what does it mean to you? Uh, what is it? What is it, What is important to you? And then, and then, you know, always go back and reflect on whatever answers you get and then stimulate the next level of questions. Um, you know, is this something for me? Is it something that is consistent with what I think? Is it different? Um, uh, why is it different? <laughs> you know, I mean, like you can just, it just goes on and on. And, um, but I think as you keep kind of, uh, asking those questions, then you, you kind of keep pushing the ability to be open, to be 
less rigid, you know, that I think that's, you know, you're going back to your question about rigidity a while ago, you know, when, when you stop asking those questions, then you become more rigid. And I think that we see this in a lot of, um, you know, very strong belief systems, again, political or religious or, or moral. Um, but as long as you keep asking the questions, I think that kind of keeps you open and, um, and keeps you, uh, you know, just keeps thinking about things and, and keep uh, looking for answers. And, and, and along the way, I think, you learn an awful lot just by asking questions. <laughs> I want to end with just a final question for both of you. I want to ask, and we'll start, Justin, with you. How has your research then influenced your own practices? And how do you listen differently kind of because of what you've studied? You know, people have to use, well, I, I, you, you study Buddhism. You know, that's true. Or you study religion. That's true. Like study languages. That's true. Like we, we all study lots of different things, but I think what I'm most interested in my life, and that has guided me through all of the different kind of stages of my studies, is that I'm fascinated by how people learn about who they are, right? Is that like, how does a Buddhist learn to be Buddhist? How does a Catholic learn to be Catholic? How does a physician learn to be a physician? How does a nurse learn to be a nurse? Like, how does an engineer learn to be an engineer? Like, the process that we we give people traits all the time and we say they're this label and like you introduced both of us and we have these titles right and you have a title and and that we present ourselves and as these finished beings to each other and i'm always fascinated when i meet somebody or when i read a book or when i study a philosopher an artist that i want to know the process of what what how they got to this title and a sense how they rearticulate it to themselves all the time. Because I think we tell our own biographies, our own autobiographies to ourselves all the time. And every time we tell it to ourselves, it's different, you know? And so like, and whoever we're speaking to, we say a different story to, and, and we couch it in a certain way. And I'm really fascinated to listen to people's stories about how they came to this point in their life. Um, and then I want to hear like about their futures, like where they project and, I'm interested in instability, I guess, right? I'm interested in process and and I'm fascinated listening to people do that. And I and maybe that's why I also listen to, you know, podcasts more and more and more lately, because you hear the processes of how people came to be who they are. And for me, that that is the um the the world is narratives and I I, I, I like listening to them. It goes back a little bit to what I was saying a moment ago about, you know, it's kind of remarkable. It's kind of, to me, it's like it's remarkable we even get up in the morning and, and can go to work. <laughs> I mean, we're, our brain has access to such a tiny amount of what is essentially an infinite universe that it's really just remarkable that we can kind of come up with anything at all. And, and so in that regard, you know, how people come up with that um, is certainly fascinating to me. But I, I think... The other piece of that, which I guess is one of the things that I've really taken to heart as I've gone through this whole, uh, my whole career to this point, is that it is a very healthy appreciation and respect for everyone's beliefs, um, everyone's belief system, because their brain and, you know, with their genetics and their upbringing and their friends and their teachers and their, you know, everything that they've ever watched on television has like brought them to where they are today. And they're looking at the world in, you know, one in that way, you know, whatever that way is. And, um, 
And uh, when somebody comes to that and, and, and does so in a genuine way, even if it's completely in disagreement to what I would, might think, um, I, I appreciate it. You know, I appreciate that they've found this exploration, that they've come to this particular place and, and thought about the world in a particular way. So I think for me, um, and, and I guess it's one of the things that I hope neurotheology really can do at some point is to get people, you know, to realize that, well, maybe the person, you know, if I'm a very, you know, staunch Democrat and I'm, I have somebody who I'm confronted with who's a very staunch Republican, uh, or I'm, I'm a, you know, very uh, devout Catholic and I'm talking to a devout Muslim, um, you know, do we need to listen to what that other person has to say and respect the fact that they came to a different conclusion than ours and appreciate that conclusion as being a different brain that has, you know, gone its path through the world and come to a different set of conclusions? Because uh, ultimately, you know, the old uh, uh, analogy, I guess, which I, I always love and has varying different degrees of variation is, you know, flies buzzing around an elephant. And, um, you know, one of them says it's a tusk and one of them says it's a trunk and one of them says it's a tail. And on one hand, they're all right. And on the other hand, they're all wrong because they only can see a very tiny part of, of what the whole is. And, and that's where we are as human beings. I and mean, we have a very finite mortal brain that is looking at an infinite universe and we come to a conclusion that makes sense to us. And so I think it's always important to really learn and listen and understand what everybody has come to in terms of their own ideas and beliefs and conclusions and and then take that from there and, and continue on our own paths and, and help them hopefully down their path. Uh, you know, we're, we're all on a path and, uh, and hopefully we can help each other down those paths instead of, uh, uh, really getting into more, more harm and interference, which doesn't really seem to work out too well in the end. <laughs> I think that is a perfect place to end. Dr. Andrew Newberg, Dr. Justin McDaniel, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. I feel like a much more compassionate communicator just from listening to what you've shared this afternoon. Thank you so much. Join us May 11th for our next episode, Listening Through Art.